Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Evictions in the greater Tampa Bay region surged last year compared to pre-2020 levels. That's a trend being felt nationwide due to the lifting of federal protections put in place towards the start of the COVID-19 pandemic to make sure people who are out of work didn't lose their homes as well. And it's also as emergency funds to help prevent evictions dried up too. Well, WUSF's Gabriella Paul, who covers paycheck-to-paycheck issues, has been following this story over the past several months talking with renters, landlords and experts who are tracking the rise in evictions and working to help people stay in their homes and deal with the legal fallout from evictions. Here to talk more about her reporting on evictions and their impact on people who've lost their homes is Gabriella. Thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thank you. And Tom DeFiore with the Bay Area Legal Services. Thank you, Tom. Oh, you're welcome. Well, let's start with the first story you reported back in May last year. Gabriella, you introduced us to a man named Bill. He didn't want to use his last name in case his eviction would jeopardize future job and housing prospects. But he lost his job, got behind on rent, and was served with an eviction notice from his landlord, which gave him just three days to vacate his apartment. I approached the court, and I asked them simply to give me a hearing. Um, There were no attorneys available, pro bono. The legal aid organizations around here were inundated with requests, so there was no help there, so I had to do it pro se. But it wasn't fair. I was a tenant at will, and she didn't have to file eviction. All she had to do was send me a nice 30-day notice saying, Bill, I'm changing my business model. Get the heck out. I mean, basically, I have a house full of furnishings that I ended up phoning the local Salvation Army and thrift stores and donating this stuff because I didn't have the means to transport it, move it, store it, and the future was kind of uh, up in the air. So Gabriella, tell us more about how Bill ended up in this predicament. How did he go from losing what sounded like a relatively good job to basically being out on the street with nothing? Bill said that this was his first experience being evicted, and I met him outside of the shelter where he was staying, and he was thinking back on this experience, and he told me is that for a while he was working a steady job. He was actually a vendor that was hired through Citizens Property Insurance, and he had recently been hired kind of before Hurricane Ian, and it was first in, first out. He lost that job and had some trouble in the aftermath of that, finding some new income. And a few months passed, and by February was about four months behind on rent. So he owed $3,000 just to cure the rent to earn a hearing if he was able to do that. So just talk about what that means. I think in your reporting, you describe it as pay to play, essentially. What, what does that mean? You've got to pay your rent before you can even get into court? Right. So Uh, According to Florida law, you have to, as someone that is facing an eviction for non-payment, you must cure your rent or not be in default in order to earn a court hearing to fight uh, that eviction in court in Florida. Now, 
a note to him, and you point this out in the story that appears on WSF.org, pro se means you represent yourself, right? So this is one of the people you talk to who didn't have a lawyer, had to kind of navigate this complicated legal system all on its own. Right. And that's overwhelmingly the case that we do see for renters in this sort of situation. A lot of times people will seek out legal aid, but as Bill mentioned, there's been an increase in evictions and there's also just a historic large amount of folks that are in need of this legal help. So it's not a given that you'll be able to receive advice and or representation. Now, in your reporting, you talked with researchers at Eviction Lab. How does Bill's story fit into the national picture of what's happening with housing and what's different about Florida and and evictions we're seeing here? Definitely. So the Eviction Lab tracks evictions across the country, and they also track evictions in a handful of cities, including Tampa. And so I know that by looking at their research that In March of last year, when Bill's eviction was filed, he was one of 1,500 renters in that similar situation. And what I can say now is that that represents actually a peak in the average evictions in the Tampa Bay region, Mm -hmm. looking at the past couple years. So there was a dip in the early months of 2020, and that's true across the country. And then there's been, in some cities, a steady increase of evictions that while they have dipped from March of last year, they're still hanging out around pre-pandemic levels. Tom, let me bring you into this conversation. What kind of help is available for people like Bill? What are their options? I mean, he, he mentioned the fact that the free legal services he turned to were inundated with requests, couldn't help him out. Is that what you're seeing? I work at Bay Area Legal Services, so we're mm-hmm. the only game in town in terms of free legal services for people facing eviction. So on my team, we have five lawyers. So you heard it just discussed that there's 1,000 evictions, 1,500 filed a month. So it's obvious that we can't meet all the need. We do what we can. If you call our office, we may be able to give you at minimum a consultation, but, you know, we also represent people in cases. It's just we have a sort of a triage system, Mm -hmm. and there's certain cases we can take, certain we can't. So it is possible to get a lawyer, but it is certainly difficult because of our resources. We're always advocating for more, but that is definitely always been a challenge in our world of not charging a fee for legal services. So how many lawyers would you need to cope with the number of cases? That's a good question. I think even with five, six, seven, eight more lawyers, we couldn't meet the need. Mm -hmm. But the more we can, the better. I think what we're trying to develop, and there's some pro se materials out there. There's something called an eviction answer builder, which was built by Jacksonville Legal Aid. It's kind of like a wiki how to do it. But it really does a good job of getting you an actual literal document typed Mm -hmm. out that'll get you an answer to that. But that doesn't address the issue of how to sometimes complicated nature of responding. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me too, like if you also then have to have the resources to be able to get to a computer, print out a document, keep it somewhere safe. I mean, there are a lot of hurdles in place, right? A lot in place. And and I will tell you this, as lawyers, and I've been doing this for a long time, 80% of the cases, non-payment cases, typically the one you just heard, there's nothing we can really do. There's hardly, often not a defense that's really going to slow down an eviction in Florida, uh, typically from the time that it's filed to the time that they can be out being as little as 12 to 15 days. Right. So our often our job, or what we try and do in these cases, we mentioned pay to play. Mm. So with pay to play, the law says you need to deposit into the court bank or court registry the rent alleged in the complaint or file something called a motion to determine rent, which puts the issue of rent at question. 
So most of the time, we're trying to find a way to file a motion to determine rent, to put a little bit of a stop on the process, reach out to the other side and see if we can work out a deal, a move-out date, a settlement, a payment plan. We do have some access to limited rental assistance, which we've been, we're very successful with and still are at times as well, but especially during COVID. We're handicapped as lawyers based on the nature of the statute itself. Right. So you're trying to buy some time for clients, which in this case would have helped Bill, right? He, he said he would like an extra 30 days to kind of get his affairs in order and stop the eviction, even if they have to move out. If they don't have the eviction, that's going to mean a world of difference down the track when they're trying to find other accommodation, right? If we can get involved beforehand and not get the eviction filed, that's always best. But once the eviction's filed, that's public record, right? And even if you go into court or even if you win the case, you still have an eviction on your record and the next landlord's going to see that public record. And if they're looking at somebody who has a clean record, a good reference from a landlord versus somebody who, quote unquote, beat the rap in court, who are they going to rent to? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, that's another issue that is uh, difficult to face, and there's no expungement of criminal eviction records in Florida that's available. Very rare occasions, but it's very difficult. Once it's filed, the damage is done. For your organization, did you see some respite from the kind of flood of cases in the early months of the pandemic? Absolutely. There was a huge drop in the filings because of the moratorium. And I will note that the moratorium really didn't prevent landlords from filing evictions, although they believed that was the case. So mm-hmm. there was the large drop, I think it would be shown in the in the records. And then once those restrictions stopped, then it cranked up to, I think, that 1,500 a month stat. And now it's probably back to about the average, which I think is usually about eight to 900 a month, mm-hmm. something like that, in Hillsborough County alone, yeah, which is a pretty high number anyway. So, Gabriella, you've checked back in with Bill since your original report aired last May. So we're almost up to a year since he lost that apartment. What's changed for him in that time? Yeah, so I spoke to Bill earlier this week, and he's still living in the shelter where I first met him. However, a lot's happened in between that. So he thought that it was going to be a very temporary situation, that he was going to be able to get back on his feet relatively quickly. In this year's time, he's held two different jobs. He ended up staying at a different shelter in Pinellas County, just moved back to this first shelter this week, in fact. He had applied to two different uh, apartments, had a lot of trouble proving payment with his pay stubs because his address has changed so much over the past year. Mm -hmm. So his applications fell through. I mean, he couldn't tell me if an eviction filing on his record is what maybe stopped a landlord from renting to him, but he expects that played a role in this. Yeah. And he says this week he's got less than $100 to his name. He's had to sleep at work. He works at a hospital facility in town. He's had to wait for banks and libraries to open to use Wi-Fi to keep applying to jobs and to keep applying for apartments. But he's still hopeful despite his experience this year, but he's very frustrated feeling like he's doing all of the right things. He's tapped into a lot of the assistance programs in town, and he's just not able to catch a break. And he definitely let me know. He said, I'm not special. There's thousands of us out here. And he's a guy who's in his 60s, right? And as you mentioned, this is his first experience with evictions. I mean, this is a pretty abrupt and terrifying reversal of fortunes for somebody like that. Yeah, he was 64 when I talked to him last year. He may have had a birthday. But before he moved to Florida and was renting a single family home, he said he was a homeowner. Mm. So this is a lot to grapple with and a lot to think about while he's also 
wanting to age in Florida and to think about what his retirement might look like. However, he's in a survival mode day to day right now. Yeah. And I might add to that, that with COVID, what we've seen is, and I've been at this for 30 years, we have a certain type of client that we typically have seen before that. Now we have a whole new client. And this is the result of not just COVID, but the increase in the rental market Mm -hmm. in Tampa. So what was used to be considered a low income problem is no longer that. It's a middle to upper middle class problem because people can't afford the rent and they're so close to the edge that when something drops, your car breaks down and you can't get to work, you lose your job, you miss a paycheck or two, you're in this situation. And I can't tell many people told me, you know, you don't understand. I've had my whole life where I've I've worked and I've never been in this situation before. And I just had this one little bump on the road. And now I'm sitting here with an eviction against my record. Mm-hmm. And I can't find the new place because nobody's willing to rent to me. So it is, it is a very sort of a cyclone of events, as well as with inflation, the price, price of food, yeah. all these things like a, a tsunami combined that has brought a whole new crop of people into this issue. Well, Gabriella, another kind of eviction that you report on is the informal eviction. Uh, Wendy Castro and her partner faced a non-renewal of their lease on an apartment in St. Petersburg, and that's after their ceiling collapsed, and then they subsequently asked the management company to compensate them for lost and damaged belongings. Here's Castro explaining the situation. It felt like I was forcefully being moved out of my home that I had tried so hard to build for something that wasn't my fault. I should note, you did this interview while you were driving along with Castro. She made her way to her job since she had to move somewhere quite far out from her place of work. So what's the difference between an informal eviction and and others that go through the courts? And how do they track them if there isn't necessarily a paper trail? Great question. They are not something that really can be tracked. An informal eviction is essentially a name for a bucket of tactics that can take a lot of different forms that landlords or owners might use to displace a renter. It can be legal, it can be illegal, depending on the tactic, but it entirely happens outside of the court system. So, for example, that might look like consistently threatening eviction or creating extreme rent increases or refusing to renew a lease without reason. In Castro's case, it was a notice of non-renewal, and she says herself she doesn't call it an eviction. She says it very much felt like one, but she calls it a notice for non-renewal, and she suspects that there was some motive of retaliation there, which the landlord I spoke to doesn't characterize it that same way. Mm. In this story, though, what I explored was that regardless of intentions or not, she had to find a new place at the height of Tampa's rent increases late last year, and she had to do it quickly. Tom, do you get calls for help with this kind of situation as well? Sure. And this is a bit of a, a definitely a challenge mm. for tenants. I think the main issue here is that in most cases, there's no cause needed to not renew a lease. In other jurisdictions, that's always needed. In Florida, if you have certain subsidies from the federal government, you need cause to renew, but generally you don't. So then the question becomes, why are you not renewing me? Like this person said, well, I think it's retaliation. Mm. And retaliatory conduct is defined under Florida law as basically treating somebody differently than somebody else with the same sort of of fact situation. The issue with that, though, is if you don't move out and you're going to say, well, I'm going to fight this in court, I'm not going to leave, you need to prove that retaliation. And proving what went on inside a landlord's mind is not so easy to do. As you know, in this case, the landlord said, no, that had nothing to do with it. It was a business reason or I don't even need to tell you what the reason is. So it's a challenge to prove retaliatory conduct. But absent that, you are vulnerable at the end of a lease 
to non-renewal. So that certainly is, is a concern that mm. we see. And landlords will and can find different ways to evict people without going to court. Some, like you said, lockouts, shutting power off are illegal. But again, you need to enforce that remedy. Some are just, I'm not going to give you a reason. Mm. Uh, we're just not going to renew you. Just to clarify, Gabriella, you, you did speak to the property manager in this case. How, how did they characterize what went on here? This property owner with Terrier Properties in St. Petersburg, they own a lot of the older historic apartment buildings for rent. And he said that the ceiling had collapsed and was open to compensation for the belongings that were ruined, Mm -hmm. not to the level that Castro was asking. And so both Castro and this landlord admitted that things got ugly. There was back and forth for months and months and months. But at the end of the day, he called what her reaction was a campaign of terror, which was talking to media asking for compensation over and over again, really just consistently asking if there was going to be a renewal or a notice for non-renewal. And he characterized that as this campaign of terror and said that at the end of the day, it's squarely within my rights to not renew this lease. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with WUSF's Gabriella Paul about her reporting on evictions and attorney Tom DeFury with Bay Area Legal Services about the impact of evictions. We'll continue the conversation after this. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking with WUSF's Gabriella Paul about her reporting on the surge in evictions in the greater Tampa Bay region and Tom DeFiore with Bay Area Legal Services. I want to talk about Floridians living in public housing too. They can also face eviction. Let's hear from Tonda Tyson. She was evicted from public housing in Tampa and this is after her husband passed away. The primary emotion is anger because number one, The availability here in Florida for affordable living is little to non-existent. There's waiting lists that's two and three years long. The affordability of housing. I would not have been in this situation if post-pandemic apartment prices didn't soar the way they did. For we, we locals here who, who lived here all our lives. Our pay scale is just not commensable with how much the rent has increased. So that kind of sums up the situation that a lot of folks in Florida are facing with the economy the way it is. Gabriella, this is an interesting case because Tonda Tyson was not the person in charge of paying the rent up until her husband passing away, right? So this kind of came as a shock to her besides dealing with the grief of losing her husband, a lot of stuff to go through, and then on top of it, losing her home. Right. So I talked to Tonda, actually met her at the courthouse about a couple weeks after she had uh, represented herself. And she was feeling angry, you know, reminiscing back. But in the moment, she was really feeling a lot of shock. So as you mentioned, she became aware of the eviction after her husband was hospitalized and the bills started piling up. And she had to very quickly, you know, educate herself on what was possible. Unfortunately, through what she learned in this experience, she told me if she knew what she knew now, she would have just picked up and left as soon as she saw the eviction filing. She would not have actually pursued fighting the eviction because she really ended up 
worse off. While she doesn't have an eviction on her record, she has an eviction filing, as Tom mentioned, that's public record. Mm -hmm. And she had to pay to cure her rent and continue paying to remain out of default during the months it took and the weeks it took to get into the courtroom. She was not really briefed on how formal of a hearing it would be. She told me about that experience. And at that point, when she was representing herself, her husband had passed away. And she said that, you know, she was coming to court with a lot on her mind. Mm -hmm. She was asking herself how she was going to pay for funeral costs on top of moving. And the fact that once she had this eviction on her record with public housing, she lost her project-based voucher there. So it was really the prospect of how do I find an apartment that I can afford alone for the first time in a long time without the help of the Tampa Housing Authority. Tom, what about this dilemma that people like Tonda find themselves in, whether to pay the rent in arrears and fight the eviction or just kind of cut their losses and, and move on? That is a huge question and it's front and center whenever we interview anybody. Right behind finding out when a response is due is, how are we gonna address this deposit requirement? And sometimes people have the money But you have to understand, if you haven't tendered that money in the three-day period or the 30-day period, you could put the money in and go to court. It doesn't mean you're going to win at that hearing. It basically buys you a day in court. So often, if somebody has a large amount of money saved up, we will not advise them to put it in the court registry, but rather reach out to the other side and try and work out a settlement and say, hey, we've got this amount of money. Let's try and work out a deal. Mm The average person won't know that. They read the summons and it says, if you don't put the money in, you're going to be evicted. But it doesn't say, and you're guaranteed not being evicted. So, you know, you can go to court, put your money in, lose lose your money, and you're still evicted, which it sounds like may have happened here. This person was in um, subsidized housing, so we have a, a much higher priority for that just because of our limited resources, especially Section 8 housing-based vouchers are extremely valuable. So mm-hmm. we represent people at a lot of those hearings where they're threatened to be terminated from Section 8 and sometimes also in the landlord-tenant case itself. So definitely a challenge you know, to deposit or not deposit. That's the question <laughs> pretty much. And it takes a skilled person who's done this quite a bit to realize whether or not it's a good idea or not. And even to this day, we'd have cases where we'd say, that's a close one. I'm not sure we would or we would not. I will say that the judges, since COVID, at least in county court, have been more receptive to giving people's hearings if you file that motion to determine rent. Hmm. And you put in there a reason why you don't believe the rent is correct. There were conditions issues. I don't know what the rent is. Or the three-day notice has the wrong amount. Give me a ledger showing me because I don't think I owe this. Putting something in there and documenting it is a much better way and hold your money and then let the judge determine how much you have to deposit is much safer than just putting the money in. It's a lot to have to figure out yourself. A lot for somebody who's not trained. Hmm. Now, Gabriella, you also reported on how evictions can play out for mobile home residents like Janie DeCoyle, who was evicted from Lakeview in the Hills Mobile Home Park in Dade City. And that was for rules violations. Let's take a listen. And I probably should have hired an attorney, but I didn't have money for an attorney. It was either that or find a new place to live, and I couldn't choose. How do you choose? You know you're going to lose, so go get a house. Go get another place to live. And as it is, I'm going from a two-bedroom house down to a 300-square-foot studio. In this case, the rules violations essentially sounded like it was a messy yard and some infractions there. But how do you go from that to losing your home? That sounds pretty drastic. What DeCoyle was facing was an eviction for rules violation or 
uh, noncompliance. And in this case, yes, it did come down to back and forth in the court over what was in her carport. It was a lot of gardening gear. There's a lot of other things that were restricted based on the rules that the mobile home lot owner was dictating. And from my understanding, Florida law, as it pertains to renters and mobile home parks, are completely subject to the rules that are outlined by park owners. Tom, how are mobile home park evictions different from people being evicted from apartments and other properties? As was mentioned, there are some additional protections. The downside is that there's so much more at stake. You often have, in mobile home parks, you have somebody that is renting the lot Mm. underneath the land. But they own the... And they own the home. So that's when this particular provision goes into play. So it's not just a matter of you moving out of somebody else's home. It's literally a matter of losing the mobile home that you're living in, which often can't be moved or is too expensive to move. So it's almost the equivalent of a foreclosure in your house, except it only takes two weeks as opposed to you know six months to a year. Now, with rules and regulations, there's only a few grounds to evict. One of them is non-payment of lot rent, which is really no different than non-payment of rent in an apartment. The other is the rules and regulations. Those are probably 90% of the evictions. With rules and regulations, are there any exceptions to it? I would say, you know, the two things would be, again, something we touched on. If a mobile home park owner is indiscriminately or enforcing more against one person than another because of any particular reason, you have two dogs there, but four other people have two dogs and they're not evicting them. What's the reason? That could be a defense. And if I can jump in on that, that one defense being discriminatory action, Janie had represented herself in court and, you know, she suspected that there was some foul play there. And I sat in on that court hearing that day and I watched her pull up neighbors to the stand and try to paint the picture of this unfair action. But really, I mean, it was a great example of how an argument can be valid, but you really need that representation and that legal expertise in the courtroom. You know, watching at this point through this series, a handful of residents represent themselves, it's hard to watch. We've heard from a lot of tenants in the course of your reporting, Gabrielle, and and experts who are kind of helping those tenants out. What about the story from the landlord's side? What are you hearing from them? In this series, there was a lot of different circumstances and different causes for eviction that I explored. In talking to the landlords, they admitted themselves that there is kind of an uneven playing field here in Florida. It's a great place to be a landlord. There's not a lot in terms of defenses for renters once it makes it to you know, an eviction process that will keep you from emptying your property if that's how you want it. That's really one thing that I learned from talking to landlords and that a lot of the landlord-tenant laws right now are changing. So year to year, I think uh, landlords were kind of able to point that out, that rents are rising and they're having to keep up with paying their bills on their side. So just to conclude here, Tom, what does that mean from your point of view, how that landscape is changing, as Gabriella points out? Does it make things better for tenants down the track? Is it more complicated? What does it look like? Regarding landlords, I mean, I think what I would mention is with COVID, I think that set the tone in that a lot of them lost a lot of money, frankly, and they had to have client tenants that were in their property that they couldn't get rid of. So this Mm -hmm. made, ironically, made it harder post-COVID 
higher qualifications, higher requirements of tenants, similar to the foreclosure crisis when you try to get a mortgage after that, you know how hard it was. So they were burned, quote unquote, once. So that is something, a factor in terms of trying to get settlements together is that landlords are like, I don't want to deal with this. We've been speaking with Tom DeFiore with Bay Area Legal Services. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. And WSF's Gabrielle Paul, who covers paycheck to paycheck issues. Thank you so much for talking with us about your reporting on evictions, Gabriella. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Our producer is Steve Newborn, engineering support from Jackson Harp. You can read more of Gabriella's reporting on evictions on our website, WUSF.org. Subscribe to Florida Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Oh,